Call America is a history podcast about what makes America great. I'm Carl Joseph Black, a Brooklyn native born into the cult. And I'm Lisa Charlotte, an Australian migrant who totally bought into it from afar. Each episode, we unpack the American way of life from an outsider's perspective, from the Pledge of Allegiance to American exceptionalism and more. We'll dive into the history and share our personal experiences, along with discussion of some actual cults along the way. Listen to Cult America on a Three Springs Media Network, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of That Brooklyn Film Show. I am Simone Joy Torre. And I'm Jabari Torre. And this week we'll be talking about some of the works of Wong Kar Wai. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about the works of Wong Kar Wai and how some of his films and then how he became, grew to become an influence on other filmmakers such as Barry Jenkins, who we mentioned, or his film we mentioned in the last episode. Um, Jabari, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, so um, Wong Kar Wai is a very influential filmmaker because of his unique visual style, his approach to storytelling, and his very, um, what am I looking for? Poetic. Anthology style of storytelling where a lot of the time since he films in a way where it's not exactly sequential, like he might change midway in a film and change up the whole story or change up the whole idea, a lot of his movies have a very frenetic pace to them. Yeah, I think, like, when I think of his films, I don't necessarily think of the story. Oh, I do think of the story, but I think that for him, a big part is the visuals tell you a lot of the story, the colors and the shots and how things are framed. And a lot of that is what I think of when I think of his films and I guess the storytelling aspect of it more so than maybe straight plot or script or anything like that. You know what I mean? That's very true, and that's part of what makes Wong Kar Wai a very thematic filmmaker. And speaking of themes, what are some of the themes that you noticed in watching his movies recently? Um, so in the three that we watch, one of the big ones is Unrequited Love. You see that in Chung King Express, in both of the stories, um, in The Mood for Love, this like non-affair affair that's going on, you see that as well as in 2046 with one of the with him with one of the characters, and then one of the characters with Mr. Chow, the main character of that film, you kind of have that going on, um, that unrequited love is a big theme. Um, I think another one I've noticed is Hong Kong in a couple of his movies as a character of its own, because um, that's like a big focus of a lot of his films in, in the 1960s. I agree with the themes of love, but I think his approach to love is both cliche in a way, and that is just a typical love, but it's also more so the idea of love than actual love. Because in many of his movies, we see that characters are more so in love with the idea of love than actually being in love. Like in um, 2046, that one woman who um, fell in love with him, even though he said he didn't love her back, Mm -hmm. she was more so in love with the idea of him versus actually being in love with him because she didn't know him that well. It's been a couple of months, maybe days at best. And then in um in the mood for love, the whole title of the film kind of gives it away, but you don't realize that until after you watch the film that they were more so in, in love with the idea of being in love and not really in love with each other. Mm. Because since they acted out the love, 
they fell in love with that. But when it was actually them having to be with each other, their love wasn't as prevalent. prevalent. Is that it? See, I disagree with that notion. I think that they were in love with each other, but they never acted on it. Because I think that there was like one line I was watching earlier today. There was one line where he said um, to her, and maybe he was more in love with her than she was with him, or she was in love with him, but she just knew she was never going to leave her husband. Um, where he said, I understand how it happened between um, his wife and her husband. He said, because feelings can creep up on you just like that. So I think that when you think about the span of the movie, which um, although it seems like it takes place in a short period of time, it does take place over a large span of time. Um, they do fall in love. They just never act on it. And I think he would have acted on it if she had, you know what I mean? Like he was more willing to act on it than she was. No, that's true. But I think that that's still the idea of love because what they fell in love with was over the trauma that they faced together of their spouses cheating on each other with each other on them. Now their spouses fell in love more organically because they got to know each other and they realized that their spouses were really good for each other because they kept ordering the same foods. Like, what do you think your spouse will order? Mm-hmm. And I think they ordered the same food saying, oh, wow, they got a lot in common. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even see their spouses, but we saw that their spouses, based on their actions, had a lot in common. Mm-hmm. And then they became started to fall in love based on acting out this fantasy of how their spouses would act out. But they never really got to know each other intimately because every time they were with each other, they were role-playing. So I personally think that it's more so the idea and the mystique of love that brought them together more so than actually getting to know each other in an organic matter since it was all acted out in fantasy for them. It's like the idea of love that Disney pushes out, like the it's supposed to be this perfect love that really doesn't exist in real life, but they were playing that out so much that they started to think it was real, but they never really knew that. They never actually came to terms with it because by the time they started to get to know each other, they separated. So now that we're talking about it, let's transition to talking a little bit more about In the Mood for Love. Um, Before I kind of respond to what you were saying, I do want to do a quick synopsis for people who haven't seen the movie before. Um, So In the Mood for Love is set in a Shanghainese community in British Hong Kong in 1962. It follows Chao Muan, a journalist, um, who rents a room in an apartment on the same day as Su Li Zhen, um, who is a secretary from a shipping company. Throughout the movie, she is referred to as Mrs. Chan, and he is Mr. Chow. And essentially, it is the relationship that builds between them as they explore what how a relationship built between their spouses. So Mrs. Chan's husband is in a relationship, as we mentioned earlier, with um, or is having an affair with uh, Mr. Chow's wife. And throughout the course of this movie, they begin to fall in love with each other um, while acting out how it's possible for her, her husband and his wife to fall in love with each other. Um, and then just in response to you, while I do think it was was a fantasy, I feel like, eventually that fantasy of them acting out their love or, you know, their respective partner's love 
it did fall away into them really getting to know who the other person was and then falling in love with each other. And now, was it, you know, true love or anything like that that they sell in movies? No, which is why I think that unrequited love is a big theme of his. Because you can see the effects of Mr. Chow's love for Mrs. Chan and it not working out. You could see the effects of that in 2046, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Um, because I think, like I said, I think he fell more in love with her than she did with him because she knew she was never going to leave her husband, although she was acting out this fantasy in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that's where like it's kind of a meta narrative in that, like, I still at the most like basic levels, I do think that they were in love. But I think in a deeper thematic way, they weren't really in love because they did not really know each other that well since they could never be they could never be themselves around each other. Now, I don't think that the feelings they were feeling were inauthentic, but I just don't think it was for the people that were not acting out the love, if that makes sense. Because they're always like around each other. They're always playing somebody else. They were rarely ever themselves around each other. But my thing is, were they... Were they always playing the other person, or did that at some point did that they'll fall and they were playing themselves? Because eventually he did tell her, you know, I'm working on a martial arts novel, help me with it, which is where the whole hotel room part comes in, versus um, her husband who works for a shipping company or something, which is why he's always away. You know what I mean? So at some point he was himself and she was herself, although it didn't start out that way. Okay, yeah, that's true, but like I think we're making the same, not the same points, but we both agree that they were in love with each other, but I just, we disagree on how authentic that love was, because I think to 2046, where he was a person that would write about the different woman that moved into the apartment, mm-hmm. and as a writer, he was always creating different characters, and was writing more so about, like, he was always exaggerating things that were there. Like, they weren't exactly as they were showed to be. Like, you could say he's an unreliable narrator because he would but, express something that was not exactly reality, but a little bit embellished. So I do think that while he was in love with the woman that, in the mood for love, he was in love with her, I do think that because that they were never... Not, I don't want to say never, but they weren't often not themselves around each other. He fell more so in love with the idea of her, especially since their love was built around the trauma of their spouses cheating on them with each other. So the love may have been authentic, but it also may have been a toxic love, and then it may have been a love that wasn't quite as authentic as the one that their spouses had for each other. Like I think the whole thing was about their spouses were better for each other than they were. And they were bonding over the fact that their spouses were cheating on them. And as soon as they tried to move past that, that's when he moves away and she didn't leave with him. So it was like, in the middle of the movie, was like this fantasy almost. And then from there, reality struck and was like, oh, this isn't going to work out. And it's kind of reminding me of, it's reminding me of something else, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But when I remember it, I'll bring it back up. Yeah, I do want to, I mean, okay, so I I see what you mean. 
I don't necessarily see. I didn't consider him the narrator of In the Mood for Love, and I never got that feeling. I get that. I got the feeling that it was both of their stories that we were no, watching. No, when I say them. narrator, I don't mean like he's the one that's driving the story. But since we see it through their point of view, sometimes the movie's through his point of view, sometimes the movie's through her point of view. I think that as the point of view switches, we get a different narrator each scene or each point of view we're seeing it through. So I think when it was his point of view and her point of view, we often didn't get a uh, reliable version of what the reality of their situation was. But you know what the thing... Okay, so this is going to sound weird, but I really felt like... I felt like it was their point of view and then it also wasn't. I feel like it was a third party that was viewing it from a distance. And that's just because of the way it was shot, where you're seeing them from hallways, you're seeing them from mirrors, you're not really seeing them, you know, from, I guess, like, head on sometimes, if that makes sense. Like, you're always kind of seeing them from... Almost like a third person looking in. Looking in, yeah. You're, like, watching them from a a distance in some ways. And then in some aspects, it's a little bit different because you'll have, like, an over-the-shoulder shot where you see his silhouette and his silhouette's covering her face or something like that. So then it's kind of like his perspective. But in other cases, it feels more like a general, like third person that I'm viewing them and I'm seeing that these two people can fall in love, but their guards are up. Well, I think that's what makes his movies great is that because they're like, I guess, so poetic and not really an established narrative, you could find many different perspectives and, mm-hmm. and, um, ways to view what he's trying to say because he doesn't really say what he doesn't exactly express what he's saying like it's often veiled in like the cinematography the colors um the music that's being played in the background and while there is a narrative the narrative is very loose like you said earlier so i think that's why we may like agree on the overall theme like the overall theme is love but we may not exactly see eye to eye on what he's trying to say with the love because he's not being outwardly expressive about his own point of view. It's very open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. And then um, I know you started talking a little bit about 2046. So I wrote down um, two quotes from the end of In the Mood for Love. Um, and it kind of will help, I think, it helps frame the movie in some ways. So the first one was that that era has passed, nothing that belonged to it exists anymore. And I think that's saying that because this quote was shown, I think as he was leaving um, Hong Kong, and it's saying like, okay, this this love affair, this what happened to them, you know, in Hong Kong in 1962, it was something that happened and it's something that cannot be revisited. You know what I mean? Like, that was it. Um, so we kind of got a snapshot of their love. And then the next thing is the very last quote of the movie. Um, so I saw, I was looking it up, you know, I was like, okay, let me read because I feel like I could understand this a little bit better if I did a little bit of research or whatever. And I found something that said that there was two versions of the quote. So, you know, it's in Chinese, so it's translated to English. And there was an English translation and then a German translation, which is essentially the same, similar, but a little bit different. So in the English version, it says, he remembers those vanished years as though looking through a dusty window pane. The past is something he could see, but not touch. Everything he sees is blurred and indistinct. And I think that saying, like, 
with it being blurred and indistinct, you can look back at it and you can, especially look going looking at 2046 and his character and how he evolved in that movie, is you can look back at it and romanticize it and make it seem, you know, like it was this great thing when it ne- might, not ne- might not have necessarily been because it's blurred and indistinct. It's a memory at this point. Um, the German translation says, those past years and months are as if hidden behind a pane of glass covered by a veil of dust. You can look through the pane, but not grasp what is hidden there. You can, you can forget, you cannot forget what is past, but if you were to ever shatter the glass, you could return to those years past. Um, so one is saying you, so it's kind of like making it more personal to the, the reader as opposed to like he, which keeps the focus on the character. Um, but it's like you could, if you shatter the glass, you could return to years, but it's still not going to be the same because it's broken now. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not whole like it was when you were experiencing it. Um, so I thought those were like interesting interpretations, especially going forward and looking at his next or not his next movie, but the next movie in this informal trilogy, um, with 2046 and Days of Being Wild is looking at the past and how you can feel the presence of In the Mood for Love in 2046, although it's not a direct sequel. Um, So, yeah, those are my big takeaways. Do you have anything else? I also want to get a little bit into, like, the actual cinematography. Yeah, I mean, 2046 definitely... What I liked about it is that it doesn't exactly reference In the Mood for Love, like, heavily, but you Mm -hmm. feel it constantly weighing over the film like it's like it's like you know, like you probably feel how he feels like where he doesn't exactly bring up in the mood for love but you could feel it weighing heavily on you constantly like Ooh, whenever I remember you, that movie I was in before that character I was but yeah, yeah no, I get exactly. what you mean where it's like and the funny thing is that he actually changed a lot from in the mood for love because it took me a while to even realize that I was the same character because of how much he changed like in the mood for love since he was a married man he's a professional he was a lot more, you know, the typical husband that was pretty diligent to his wife, blah, blah, blah. But in the move for love, he like turned up into a straight playboy. And I was like, is this the same character? Because it just felt like such a different person. But then as the movie got on and you started to feel the, um, you started to feel the, the presence of in the move for love more, you start to realize, oh, this is the same character. He's just been through a lot. And after the emotional damage of the last movie, he had a kind of, change up who he is in order to protect himself in a way. And I think that's also, and maybe this, I should think of them as separate works, um, but I think viewing 2046 before In the Mood for Love, I had seen In the Mood for Love before, but you know, in my rewatch of it, viewing 2046 and then viewing In the Mood for Love, I think that in, kind of like made me think more about how he might have been truly in love with her because it feels like the loss of her is kind of what morphed him into who he was. Because you remember in the end of 2046, he met um, another, or towards the end, he met another woman named Shuri. reminded him yeah. of her. And he had, she had the same name. Yeah. And she was like, I'm, I can't be her, you know what I mean? Like, you're trying to, to push her onto me, but that's not me um i'm a different shoe then yeah i think that 
kind of to the point I was talking about before is I think he was trying to create this person that he wanted. Like, he was trying to take the woman from the other movie and turn this other woman into her. And yeah. since we, like I said, I, I think he's an unreliable narrator in 2046 because he was telling us about how perfect this woman was and how he reminded her of the woman from In the Mood Below. But we, as the actual viewer, didn't really get to know this woman. Mm-hmm. So she could have been a pretty different person, but since he was projecting this woman onto her, we had to take his word at it that she was just like the woman from In the Mood Below, even though they may have been different people. Mm-hmm. We just have to take his word for it because that's what he's telling us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so kind of a, a little bit of a transition. I do want to start talking about, cause we, we keep talking about how the mood and like, um, the atmosphere plays a big part of his films and you can see it in all three of the ones that we watched, but I do, because we were talking about the mood for love, I want to talk about that a bit. Um, and one of the big things was one, the cinematography, um, into the, one, the costumes. I love the costumes. Um, her dress was always like this pencil dress with a high neck and various prints and high heels. And you always kind of felt like, especially at times where she was just going to get noodles or something, like you're really dressed up, you know, to go get noodles. You're really dressed up to go to catch a film. Um, and I think that was in, one interesting thing. Um, another thing is, which is, um, I don't know I, how this was decided for the cinematography or the Wong Kar Wai himself, but you never clearly see their spouses' faces. You see them. It's not like they're completely, you know, non-present. Yeah, that would be the Wong Kar Wai decision because he would have to make the decision before the movie even starts just to, to not, not have show them, them yeah. in the film. Because um, I don't, do they even show, like, their bodies? Or they, they do. You see, because I remember there's a okay. scene where they're playing Mahjong um, and... You see her, you know, grab her husband's shoulder and okay. his wife comes in on his lap, but you never clearly see their faces. But even in that, you can see, like, his wife is a more of a dressed-down kind of woman and stuff like that. So it's just um, small things like that that I noticed, or even the colors that they use, like a lot of reds, a lot of greens. Um, you know, the outside, when you're outdoors, you don't really see Hong Kong. You know they're in Hong Kong, but it's, like, narrow alleyways or tight shots um no real establishing shots yeah it's not like oh we're clear like if you were in new york it would be like filming just down one street that's not clearly new york but you know instead of a wide sweeping shot of Times square yeah you're like it's just like a tight alley of a street in manhattan yeah the new york vibe because you want to be in the subway or something yeah yeah so it's like it's and then but you have the presence of hong kong in the movie yeah um what else? Oh, I do want to mention that his um, production designer is also for In the Mood for Love and 2046. Yeah, that was like obvious. William Chang is his costume designer as well. Yeah. And so the woman in the apartment 2046, the one that fell in love with him, had a similar style, style to the wife. Yeah. Um, he also did... Um, Days of Being Wild, Ashes of Time, and The Grandmaster. I wonder what the budget on this movie was. I don't know. It had a pretty indie feel to it. Like, it didn't feel like a super big budget film. Yeah. It felt very intimate and indie. And a lot of his films feel like that, where it's like, 
pick up a camera and go record very um French New Wave style. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that um, apparently his cinematographer left halfway through the movie. Which one? Uh, Christopher Doyle. I mean, which movie? This one. 2046? No, sorry, In the Mood for Love. Oh, he just left halfway through? Because the shoot was taking so long. Oh. He said that, like you mentioned, there was no script or the script kept changing. Yeah. Um, and things kept changing. So I guess he was like, I, I don't work like this. Um, and he left. But I think they had a good relationship because he did come back to work on 2046, and he was one of the cinematographers, one of the two cinematographers on um, Chungking Express. Um, another aspect that I've noticed in all of his movies, or the ones that we've watched, is the music. Um, in The Mood for Love, that, that score, that song... That one, it's just so present, yeah. and it's used so effectively. And I'm like, every time I, this, and you know, it's, I think, like, every time the score kicks in, I feel like everything seems to be moving just a bit slower than... That's that Barry Jenkins thing, where, well, Barry Jenkins, well, Barry Jenkins got from him, yeah. It's like how in, um, what's the movie he did after Moonlight? It's Bill Street Could Talk. Yeah, Bill Street Could Talk, they would always do, like, it was like a portrait almost, where he would do, like, slow music and do a close-up of them mm-hmm. to show their love and then he'll do a close-up of her and it felt like time was still, still in that place mm-hmm. so i think the music kind of activates part of the mood that they're feeling is that like this love that they're feeling is making time stand still mm-hmm. and it's putting that moment in a box which is a really effective it, way to use music in a sense it would even show them like her going down to get noodles and then her coming up the corridor and then him going down the stairs and him running back up because it's raining and you have this like, I don't know if it's a score or not. Um, and you just know when you hear that score that things are going to slow down a bit. That and you could like you can hear it in the in the score. You know what I mean? Like just the steps are going to be a little bit slower, or you know the cigarette smoke will be puffing up slowly. The camera pan will be slower, and it's just like I think that builds atmosphere. So clearly, and I think that's one of the things that makes the movie, and that I think that's why it's accredited as one of the top films of the 21st century. Well, part of what makes an effective score to me is the cohesion of the story and the score. So when the score hits, it's not just like grandiose for being grandiose sake, where they're like, oh, let's throw in a score to make people feel sad. It's like this score serves a very specific role at this moment in time so when that score hits it makes the moment bigger and it's not just there to overtake the moment if you get what I'm saying and I feel like Barry Jenkins again because you can't since he's a part of the reason why a lot of people go back to Warren Carswell's films because he's such a big influence on him Barry Jenkins is very good at utilizing scores to enhance moments Mm -hmm. because in Moonlight I'm thinking about this scene where like like I can't remember I don't remember the exact story beats but the scene stands out in my head because of the music plus that moment where the mother was staring at the camera mm-hmm. and then you had the score behind it. Mm-hmm. It's be- like moments like that where the score enhances the moments. Like the score shouldn't lead the moment. I think the score is there to just like add some salt to the moment 
and make it really some salt. Yeah, like make it bring <laughs> the whole add some spice to the moment and really bring it together and make it like oh wow this is a moment because yeah. what Juan Carlos Wide does is that he has a lot of music playing throughout his films like um. In Chongqing Express, he had that one song playing over and over again. And <laughs> while that that um song played a role, it was like trying to show this woman was kind of an outlaw and she did her own thing. But when the score hits, it really heightens the moment. He doesn't use the score just to use it. It serves a very specific role in the moment that it's used. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Um... And I think that, yeah, he uses the score very deliberately. Yeah. He frames the moment through the score, and that's what I think I see a lot in Barry Jenkins' work, because I even think of If Bill Street Could Talk, when um, you, have, you see them falling in love, and it's kind of like just on their faces. Mm-hmm. You hear that score in the background, and you see that very clearly, especially in The Mood for Love. You see that very clearly of how they use the score to, like, frame these moments and I like the fact that it's the scoring you know maybe not like just another song or something that he could have chosen for those moments yeah it's a pretty effective use because when you think of certain scenes the score is automatically tied to those scenes yeah and it's like you said framing the moment Mm -hmm. I guess the one first one I thought of was um the corridor when she's walking up the stairs from getting her noodles and he's going back down and then you see him running up and you have the score you know, playing in that moment. Um, so I do want to delve into 2046, which, as we talked about um, in talking about In the Mood for Love, was the informal sequel to um, In the Mood for Love. <laughs> um, and I'll read a brief synopsis of it, and then we can get a little bit more deeper into some of the themes which we have mentioned um, a little bit about and just, I guess, some of the differences, even in filmmaking style, although they're very similar to what was in in The Mood for Love. Um, So 2046 came out in 2004. Um, It is a loose sequel to Days of Being Wild and In the Mood for Love, and it follows um, Mr. Chow's, um, the aftermath of his affair with um, Mrs. Shan or Su Zen um, in 1960 Hong Kong and it has some science fiction elements which is mostly because Mr. Chow is writing a science fiction novel and you do get interludes to the science fiction novel world that he's writing um, and you get references to Christmas Eve as well throughout the film. So, um, yeah, so um, my first thoughts, I'm going to say how I first felt when I first started watching the movie, was like I said, I was confused as to whether this movie was a sequel, literally, like a narrative sequel, or was it just like a thematic sequel? Because it started off so like different, because it was like started off in a sci-fi world, I'm trying to figure out if this is a sci-fi movie. Then it goes to the character from um, In the Mood for Love, but he grew, like, I don't want to say he grew because I don't know if he, like, grew or devolved as a character, but he was so different than he was in In the Mood for Love that I wasn't sure if it was the same character until 
I had to look it up in the middle of the movie. Like, is this the same guy? <laughs> but then as the movie went on, I started to realize it was the same guy because they started to reference in the mood for love a little bit more. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it works really well as a sequel. Like, I liked 2046 a lot. And it took me a while to really appreciate it. But as the movie was going on, I started to really appreciate what they were doing with the film. Mm-hmm. Because while it was similar to In the Mood for Love, it was still very different in my opinion in that it was a lot darker than In the Mood for Love. Because In the Mood for Love started off like with a kind of dark tone. It then became a lot very... um. Like when the love story was at its height, it was a very warm movie. Then it kind of went back down into a more cool, realistic tone. This movie felt like throughout the whole thing it was pretty dark because he was so disconnected and like he was just a very different. Like he was in the same warm guy he was in the first movie. He was very, yeah, he was very cold in 2046. So it definitely worked as a sequel. It's very unique and what it does because you don't see a lot of movies that kind of take that kind of turn from their sequel yeah i agree um and i can see how you don't know it's uh a sequel either or like a if it's a thematic sequel or like an actual sequel with like a, a overarching arching character um between the two films because one his character was very different and two um, Wong Kar Wai tends to recast the yeah, same actor true. in his He's film, so, time, so it might actually be a different, a different character in a different movie yeah. um, because you have two of the characters from the second story of Chungking Express in yeah. this movie. So I can definitely see that, and I think once you know it, it once you realize that it is the same man from um, in the Mood for Love, you kind of wonder. How did he get to a place where, you know, he's the one night stand guy. He's the guy who doesn't, you know, treat people right um, from the character that you met in in the mood for love. And it does go a little bit into like he moved to Shanghai, Singapore. Singapore. He moved to Singapore and got into gambling and stuff and met another Suli Zen. Um, And that changed him as well, but that takes a while for you to get there. So then you kind of see how he doesn't treat people the best because you have like these three... He's probably suffering from, from some pretty serious depression. Yeah, you, and you have these three um three arcs where the first one is about a woman he met um, and she ranks room 2046. And one thing you know is that he never actually lives in 2046. He's an observer of it. Whoever's in 2046 is his next door neighbor because he has 2047. Um, So you're seeing his observations of these people. And although he might interact with them, a lot of it is his observation. So you have um, Wang Jinwen, um, who is the daughter of the hotel owner. And she falls in love with a Japanese man. And you have to remember this is the 1960s. So it's like kind of fresh off of the war kind of. Um, so he's not very accepting of that. And then you see their story play out in some ways, but I feel like with her character is where you see him the nicest, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like he starts to fall in love with her in some ways, but yeah, he definitely did. I don't think he 
yeah, he started to fall in love with her, but she, you know, she was in love with. She never fell in love with him. Really. She never fell in love with like, him. I think she started to appreciate him, but she yeah. didn't fall in love with him. She had her eyes set on this man in Japan. Yeah, and then you see that in the um, dramatization of his novel that exists within the film, yeah. um, where he is he writes himself as a Japanese man who's on the train to 2046, and he writes her as an android, and you, she's played by the same character. He's played by a different man. Um, but he talks about how this android never fell, um, or androids can't fall in love, but you have to fall in love with an android on this train 2046, which is symbolic of the room. Um, and he falls in love with the android, and the android can fall in love with the android is in love with someone else, symbolizing that she's in love with another man that's not him. So I feel like in that part of the movie is where you see him the closest to who he was in in the movie for love. Well, you also have to remember that in the movie for love, they were writing a book together, and then the yeah, movie, the that's movie what he started to fall in love with, they were writing, writing a, book a book together. together. So it all mm-hmm. goes back to what he wanted from in the movie for love and those reoccurring feelings. Yeah. And then you also have um, Bai Ling, who is the, the next door neighbor who may or may not have been a prostitute. Wasn't quite clear on that. I don't that. know what she was. Um, they were paying each other when they were seeing each other. So. Yeah, I just assumed. But I think that he was doing that to keep the distance between them in order for it to never really be, the feelings to never be official. Yeah. Where it's like, this is an exchange of goods. Like, yeah. We're not ever going to actually be... Mm-hmm. in love with each other because there's this exchange going on which is the money yeah um and then when, as soon as she broke that um as soon as she broke that image for him he was like nah you gotta go like this isn't gonna work out because she was like oh i do love you or can i spend the night he was like um no and that's when he <laughs> sent her to her home for the last time and, and she left being, yeah they were just being shady towards each other after that yeah um and i think that also brings back the theme of unrequited love because in this aspect she was the one who felt like she was falling in love with him and he was like nah I'm good um this is just you know an arrangement um that we have going on and then from that I guess heartbreak or whatever she decided to leave and you don't revisit her until the end of the movie and then one thing I did notice in this movie do you remember they they had the scenes with the black and white taxi cabs. It's like the first scene I think you have of that, if I'm remembering correctly, is him with Bai Ling in the car. Um, and then the next scene is him with Mrs. Chan from In the Mood for Love in the car. And I think that's calling back to that the fact that he's in love with her. Yeah. And maybe he could have fallen in love with Biling, but he was so closed off. Yeah, I think that was the um, thing that they did work well together, and it could have happened, but since he was so caught up on his feelings when we were in the mood for love, he wasn't going to show growth in that spot. He was just already blocked off, and he put up that wall, mm-hmm. which I think in the case was the money, where he used the money as a wall in order to make sure he didn't fall back into the same feelings he had before, mm-hmm. because he was so, like... He was he was scarred like he was a very scarred man. Yeah. And like the last time he left himself open, he got hurt. And he wasn't gonna let that happen again. Mm-hmm. And then um, the last shot or one of the last shots of the movie is him in that black and white, and he's in the car alone. So kind of yeah. like you 
let this thing go. Now you got to be on your own. Push people away to the point where yeah. now we're actually alone. Mm-hmm. No one's going after you when you can't keep putting up walls and expecting people to keep trying. Because mm-hmm. um, what happened to that, that woman who... Um, the second woman who was in 2046, didn't she move to um, somewhere after? She was going to move to Singapore at the end of the movie. That's where they met up um, one more time for dinner. And she invites him back in. And she said, we can exchange you know, money like before. And he says, there's like one thing that I refuse to lend. I can't do that. And I think at that moment, he was talking about his heart as opposed to like his body or whatever. I think he was fine with, you know, being with her, but I think he was like, no, nah, I can't do this because he was already too scarred at that point. He was scarred. And then I think he also knew what it would do to her. Yeah. If he said, cause she was kind okay. of him where she was reliving that one Christmas over and over, over again, again in her mind mm-hmm. in the same way that he was living that one moment over and over again in his mind from when he moved to love. Yeah. Where he was trying to project, yeah. Um, or I guess on the, the second Suli that he met, he was trying to project the first one yeah. on her. And from there, once he realized he couldn't do that, he was just like, let me close close myself off to to love. And that's what you see, who you see in 2046 is the result of that. And then, um, and another thing I noticed, so like I said, I rewatched In the Mood for Love after watching 2046 and another thing that I noticed was there was a quote in 2046 sorry yeah quote in 2046 that was a repeat from in the mood for love which I guess goes to show um how some of these themes are are similar and that quote was um so in 2046 they mentioned a quote that had been towards the end of In the Mood for Love, which was essentially the idea that to, I guess, get rid of a secret and not tell anyone is to climb a mountain, find a tree with a hole in it, and then whisper your secret into that hole. And then the secret will be, you know, gone forever. Um, And that came back in 2046 in the novel that he was writing, where the Japanese guy told the android that he was speaking to, do you want to know how you get rid of a secret? Um, And I think that's an interesting um, concept to come back to because the very, one of the ending shots of, or the last shot of Mr. Chow in In the Mood for Love is him in Cambodia at... No, he's in Cambodia. Oh, okay. Um, It looks like a temple, and he finds a hole, and you see him whispering in that hole, and then you pull out and you see the, I believe it's a temple, you see the entire temple and then you go back to that hole and you see that the hole is now growing or it was stuffed with grass, like it's, it's filled now, you know what I mean? It's not a hole anymore. Um, so I think that was an interesting concept to come back to about secrets, especially because that's where you, you're supposed to, I guess, presume that's where he left his secret about um, Mrs. Chan. Um Another thing I want to get into um, is a little bit of the differences between, I guess, how In the Mood for Love looks and how 2046 looks. Um, 2046 is still, you know, very much indoors, very much you don't 
necessarily feel like you're in Hong Kong. Um, but one thing I did notice is you, a lot of the times you don't see two people's faces in the screen at the same time. Like when people are having a conversation, you'll shift from the person talking to the person listening and then you'll see the back of their heads or you won't ever see the screen fully um, like a full screen. Like it's always obscured by some sort of object, be it like a door or a wall or something. It's always obscured. So it's almost like you're only looking at them on half of the screen. And this is like a purposeful technique that he's using. Um, And even like the hotel that they were staying in, I feel like you never got a real sense of, the layout of it, it always felt kind of narrow and kind of like cramped. cramped. Yeah, that I think that's a good word, it's cramped. And when you did see outside, a lot of the time it would be one of the women that he was, you know, um, involved with or friends with, in the case of the daughter, she's on the roof and just looking and you see the hotel sign and you see her on the roof um, for the daughter and by Link, you know what I mean? Um, you just see them. I guess that's like the the way you see them outside, and I guess how he would be observing them. Do you have anything to? Yeah, yeah. So that talks to the importance of setting, because while I didn't exactly think of that point in particular, I do realize that the settings that each movie is in plays an important role. So speaking of the cramped apartments and the I guess smaller sec the smaller settings that. 2046 may have taken in because you remember that in the future he was on a train for mm-hmm. most of the story because the train went to the did the train go to 40, 2046 they took the train to 2046 2046 and, and you yeah. don't go back I yeah believe. trains are pretty cramped so maybe the cramped apartments was like a expression of his emotional state where he was a lot more closed in and shut out from the world because of what happened in 2040 in in the mood for love because he was more open back then. He was more receptive to other people and other people's love. But now that in this film, he's a lot more shelled and walled off and closed off. The setting and the atmosphere is used to reflect how he is feeling internally. So I do think that it plays an important role in the setting because most of the movie took place in that apartment. It was Mm -hmm. either in that apartment or in his created world of 2046. Mm. Wait, no, wait, the book wasn't 2046, though. The book was 2047. No, he had 2046, and then... Because the book he wrote for the um, Japanese girl was... It's called 2047. I think that was supposed to be a sequel. That was 2047. I think that was supposed to be a sequel to 2046. Um, And he lived in 2047. He lived in 2047. He lived in 2047, so I feel like 2046 it says was a place where you go to find lost love and everyone who goes to 2046. But was the sci-fi book 2046 or was it sci-fi I think the sci-fi book, book was 2046. Okay. Um, you, yeah, you find, you go there to find the lost love and most people, they say, who goes to 2046 don't return, don't return from 2046 except for the that protagonist who's a Japanese guy. Um, and 2047 was the second part of the book he was writing and that's where you, um, he was leaving 2046. He was on the train. He had to take a train back from 2046. Um, and that's where he started to fall in love with the 
the android who was represented by the um, or who was representative uh, who was representative of the daughter of the hotel owner. She was who he was rep- she was representing. And I think the last point I want to make about this movie was the way they went through time and the fact that the time always started at on Christmas Eve. And you knew, well, one, you knew it was Christmas Eve because of the time or the card that said Christmas, Christmas Eve. But another reason you knew it was Christmas Eve is because of, um, you, they always play this song and that brings back the music aspect of his films of how he likes to use songs um, to represent time and to represent, you know, emotions. Uh, it would always be the, the Nat King Cole song, um, this Christmas, the Christmas song. And apparently, Long Car Wai likes Nat King Cole a lot because he listened to it growing up, which is interesting because, you know, Nat King Cole. Um, so that's, that's like, yeah, the, to wrap up 2046. It was, it was a very good follow-up to In the Mood for Love, and I am interested to see what his next movie's going to be, Blossoms, because I know that's a follow-up to... 2046, and I, I'm interested, I looked it up, I'm interested to see if it'll follow um, Bai Ling as opposed to Mr. Chow, or if we'll continue Mr. Chow's story, because I think it's, it's continuing with the themes of unrequited love. At the, in the, at the end of In the Mood for Love, we finished, we, we felt his unrequited love for Mrs. Chan, and, and at the end of 2046, I feel like you feel her unrequited love for, um, Bai Ling's unrequited love for Mr. Chow. You know what I mean? So it'll be interesting if Blossom follows her, which if Google is any indication, which I know could be wrong, that might be the case because she is one of the names, the actress is one of the names that shows up on the uh, list of actors in the film. So I do want to talk a little bit about Chongqing Express, which is Wong Kar Wai's fourth film, which is a film that Quentin Tarantino apparently was um, a part of championing. That movie is a movie that consists of two different stories uh, told in sequence. One is about a Hong Kong policeman who's heartbroken because his girlfriend broke up with him on April Fool's Day, and the next story is about um, a police officer whose girlfriend breaks up with him, um, who's a flight attendant, and the different women that come into their lives. So, on first watch, Chunking Express uh, confused me a bit, um, just because I wasn't expecting it to be two stories. I was like, thought it was going to be one story. So when one story ended, I was like, huh, wait, are we not going to go back to these characters? Is that it for them? What is happening? Um, a little bit, some of the filming, the cinematography itself, like the filming style was different. That I haven't seen anything like it before. Um, so that was one thing. Another thing is Chunking Express only took six weeks to film, which is surprising because apparently Wong Kar Wai is known for his long filmmaking process. And they filmed that, yeah, production. Um, and he filmed that in only six weeks. Um, 
So upon, you know, reading a little bit more about Chunking Express and thinking about it, it's supposed to be kind of like a day in the life, almost not a day in the life, but you know how for me, I'm living my life right now. Right. And if I bump into the random person in the street, their life doesn't affect me, but it's as if someone was recording my life. I bump into a random person in the street and then the camera decides to follow that random person as opposed to following me anymore. My life no longer is the main point of view. Now it's the point of view of the person that I just bumped into. They're the person that the uh, camera's following. They're the protagonist of the story now. You look so messed up, not like that. Really. I was just watching yeah. that. Was following different people's stories and they didn't like, really relate to each other. It was just like everyone in their own life had their own story. Everyone's a person. You're the main character of your own life. Yeah, you're the protagonist of your own story. Um, so yeah, that's one thing that I enjoyed about the movie. Was that after thinking about it, about, um, how it was filmed, like bumping into somebody. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it was supposed to. Um, it's that's how you follow someone else. But another thing I want to get into quickly is just the film style, because you remember how. It's blurry, and things seem to be moving slow, but they're also moving fast at the same time. Yeah. Um, apparently, that's called step printing, where it's like you record once, and then you kind of duplicate that film, and I guess you layer it on top of each other. You're the filmmaker here, so you might know this a little bit better than you I do. You don't use film um, anymore, so... Well, I mean, it's, I guess it's, digital, I think it's, a, I think it's a technique you could do. Oh, you can't? Okay, never mind. You do it, I'm sure you could do the technique digitally, but I'm sure it's probably done just... Adding blur to yeah. film speed up, slow down. Yeah, but I think that the fact that, and I think that was what made it unique too, is because it's like you have these moments similar to his other movies, but a little bit different, where a person's moving so slowly, but everything around them is moving quickly. And I think that is representative of life in the city, you know what I mean? And that's where Hong Kong feels more prevalent, even more prevalent here than it did in his previous movies, is because you have these people, it's just life is moving so fast, but also slow at the same time. And I think that was just an interesting filmmaking technique there. Um, so overall, I just, I don't know, I think Wong Kar Wai is a very good filmmaker. I enjoyed delving more into his movies because the only one I had seen before this was In the Mood for Love. Which is regarded as his magnum opus. Yeah. Um, it's a film that when you think of Wong Kar Wai, I'm thinking of automatically what comes to head yeah, to head to mind. Influential to other is, so. Yeah, I think um, it influenced Lost in Translation by Sofia Coppola, which I haven't seen, but you know that's a very popular film. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's about it for Wong Kar Wai. I mean, watching his movies, yeah, it was really good. and It was fun to explore his works further and just see one the growth and then two just how someone can have such a distinct style yeah because between chunking express and um in the mood for love was six years mm -hmm. so he definitely drew a lot between those two movies yeah i'm sure a lot has like influenced him and caused such a because while chunking express is a great movie you can definitely see the growth and how much tighter the movie um in the mood for love was and jumping the express. And also, he's only made 10 films yeah, in his 30-year career, yeah. yeah. With that being said, we could close out on this episode. 
um, as we continue to improve on the show and figure out what works and what doesn't, we definitely look forward to hearing from your feedback and continue to enjoy making these episodes. Thank you.